Hello and welcome once again to Spin Unspun, the podcast about leaders and leadership in the world of corporate affairs and corporate communications. I'm Damien Reese from Instinctive Partners in conversation with the best and the brightest in corporate affairs, asking all the questions and discussing all the topics that really matter to people who shoulder the weighty responsibility for corporate reputation and effective communications. Today, I'm delighted to be joined in the Instinctive Studio by Andrew Walton, Chief Corporate Affairs Officer at Lloyd's Banking Group, whose private equity arm, I should say, owns 70% of Instinctive Partners. And Lloyd's, of course, is the largest lender in the UK. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for your time. Great to be here. And also joining me today is my Instinctive co-host, Vicky Haynes, a director here at Instinctive Partners with a special interest in financial services. Vicky, welcome. Nice to see you. Thanks, Damien. Delighted to be part of the conversation. Andrew, we're sitting here March 2023. Um, I guess banking has been a fairly busy place to be uh, for someone who's head of corporate affairs. And we'll come on to how banks can maintain trust and and confidence and reputation in these somewhat turbulent times. But the the job of corporate affairs can mean different things uh, in different businesses. What's the role of corporate affairs at Lloyd's Banking Group and how would you say it's changed over the years? Well, thanks and great to be here. Uh, At at Lloyd's Banking Group, the corporate affairs function has evolved. I think like corporate affairs functions in most large um, integrated retail businesses uh, into one that is charged with ensuring that all of our stakeholders uh, get a clear understanding uh, of the uh, character and competency of the group. And I use those phrases because I think they're the foundations of reputation. So my job principally is focused on the areas of external uh, communications, internal uh, communications, uh, and uh, associated um, disciplines that uh, affect our uh, external reputation, internal reputation with the audiences that matter most to us. And they are primarily charged with securing trust for our license to operate. Uh, freedom to manoeuvre to operate the business for the benefit of all of our stakeholders and those include our shareholders and our customers. Uh, And uh, uh, I've had that job for about five years. Would you say that role therefore has broadened out over the years? Maybe before you you came, it was perhaps a, a, a more limited role. Well, well, no. Whether in Lloyd's or other businesses as well. Interestingly, that's an interesting dynamic. And, you know, the predecessor in the job that I now have really was Matt Young, who uh, is, you know, is and remains, you know, a, a very effective operator in this industry. Uh, and he had the the probably broadest remit of corporate affairs you could imagine that included every aspect uh, in addition to the traditional corporate affairs function that I lead. He also uh, had oversight of what might be described as responsible business. He also had sustainability and elsewhere. And I think one of the things that's evolved in businesses is that areas like uh, responsible business, ESG, and sustainability in particular, have become huge disciplines in their own right. And I've said for a long time, I think if you're doing sustainability in corporate affairs, you're doing it wrong. Uh, and I think uh, in that sense, uh, the focus of my role has narrowed. So when I took it on, it was um, you know, it was focused on uh, external relations, uh, internal relations, and public affairs. 
and 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 responsible business and sustainability sits as a separate exco seat and i think that's that's you know an effective way to operate so um what what also has changed is uh, of course for all major companies and particularly those that are highly regulated like ours uh, is how integrated the stakeholder uh, relationships have become. Uh, and so uh, I think the time where the corporate affairs function could be compartmentalized into just media relations and, and internal relations sat somewhere else and public affairs was sometimes in a different place, that, that's not possible anymore. I think we've seen an alignment of all those stakeholders, clearly shareholders, uh, political regulatory, NGO, opinion formers, uh, and internal and customer audiences are all interlinked. And that's why the, the function, I think, in, in most companies that, that, that are like ours, particularly with large retail brands, uh, approached in that way. Talk us through your career path. How did you get to where you are at Lloyd's? So I left university uh, wanting to uh, do something connected to politics. And I joined uh, Tim Bell's organization as a graduate trainee. Mm -hmm. And uh, his scheme took you around different disciplines in in his business, as it was then called, Low Bell uh, business for those in the industry that that remember that that was 1995, 96. Uh, And um, in the the go around, I, I did a little bit of public affairs which I found fascinating. I then went to consumer PR, which I was like, get me out of here. This is crazy. <laughs> we were doing t- uh, Tesco computers for schools. and all sorts. It was really interesting, but I just thought this is not for mm-hmm. me. Uh, and then we did, um, I moved into the financial PR part and I worked for a brilliant man called John Ancliffe, now sadly not with us. Mm-hmm. And um, I uh, did a few big M&A transactions with him in the sort of three month placing I had with him and thought this is for me. And I loved city PR from that moment onwards. So I worked with uh, him uh, in in his business, uh, which which sort of separated out, but was linked to Tim Bell's business for many years, uh, and was eventually and then eventually jumped in house to Morgan Stanley, mm-hmm. where I worked uh, to promote their investment banking business in Europe and ultimately also in New York uh, for seven years, uh, and then came back into consultancy in London in about 2005 joined the old Financial Dynamics, which ultimately became FTI Consulting. And I was in there for 13 years, ultimately running their financial services practices. So in in all of that career, I've really only worked in financial services and I've worked across the range, and it is quite a wide range in financial services from, from deep capital markets through to exchanges, asset managers, uh, retail banks, uh, and insurers, and quite a lot of insurers. So um, Lloyd's is a natural sort of end point for that because it is a an integrated um, uh, financial services provider. It's the only bank assurer, if you like, that exists that has a, a large pensions and insurance business alongside a retail banking business. And uh, it's fascinating. And I joined, I was recruited by Antonio Horta Osorio about five, uh, coming up on five years ago. And what would you say is the hardest part of the job? Well, understanding audiences, I think, is the the knottiest challenge that I think all corporate affairs directors face. Mm-hmm. Um, y- y- there's never an answer. M- much as politicians keep uh, polling audiences to try and understand what messages are getting through, what's important to the audiences they serve, and balancing that against uh, what they think is the right thing and, and ultimately the, the, the right way forward, I think corporate affairs is 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 always trying to understand its audiences most effectively. It's not the only input to the decision that you make, mm. but it's a really challenging one. And of course, 
every poll tells a different story, every piece of insight tells a different story. But but my predecessors, and, and I've continued it, uh, have put insight at the absolute sort of heart of our corporate affairs planning. And um, we have an insatiable appetite for insight and data. But the hard part of it is is interpreting it correctly and determining sometimes when um, it isn't telling, it might not tell you what you want it to tell you, and you've just got to forge a leadership course. So I think that that's that's certainly one of the hardest uh, things to deal with. I think the other thing to reflect on is when you're um, you don't have the freedom to maneuver that you would hope to have. So sometimes you want to be. Uh, radical. Sometimes mm. you want to be really creative, and it doesn't fit necessarily with with the brand or the operation that you work for. So you know, I look sometimes at the freedom, the maneuver that some of my sort of fintech peers have, and I, I sort of wish I could be that daring and bold. And we do lots of daring and bold things, mm. but it's all set within a historical mm. context of you know, a, an established lender and uh, uh, and one with a lot of responsibilities that uh, go beyond those of, uh, of startups. Mm-hmm. Would you, what would you say to a young Andrew Walton contemplating agency work versus in-house? You've obviously done both, as you were just describing. Yep. Is one better than the other? No, do a bit of both. I mean, I miss consultancy. I miss selling. Uh, I loved... Um, uh, um, the pitch. The pitch. <laughs> And the intellectual fulfillment of putting together a comprehensive approach, um, pitching it, then buying it, debating it, challenging it, you standing up for it, and then you implementing it and you seeing the outcome. There's no greater intellectual journey, I think, than that in our industry. I think it's really a fascinating thing that uh, people in your seat get to do. You also get, you know, the to deal with the knottiest and most complex and challenging issues in consultancy, whereas uh, in-house, you know, you deal with with everything. Um, you don't just, you know, the, the CEO's at the end of the hall and he comes to see you about everything. He doesn't just pitch you, pick up the phone when something's really knotty. Uh, but in-house, you have, you know, fantastic sort of breadth of resource, huge um, intellectual range in terms of the issues you have to deal with. The multitude of audiences is more complex. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a different sort of train set, if you like, um, to deal with reputationally when you're dealing with a major brand. But the advice I give to somebody starting out in this industry, and I think I've been consistent about this, is um, pick your bosses, don't pick the job. Excellent advice. We've never, <laughs> had, we've never had that advice on the podcast before. Really, I I've had great, I, I have honestly had great, pick your boss. great bosses. Um, I've learned from lots of uh, brilliant people during my career, and I will name a couple of them now if you don't mind. Mm, but yes, um, I, do. I worked in my very earliest stages with a brilliant man called Stephen Sherborne and Kevin Bell in the, the Lobel Empire. Uh, I then went on to work for the brilliant John Ancliffe, who taught me enormous amount, and frankly, yes. everything that I do today. I remember I learned, John from I learned being from a journalist. Yeah, and, was, and I, you know, absolutely legendary. I then went to work for a brilliant man called Ewart Glendinning at Morgan Stanley, Indeed, yes. a real pro who taught me how to work inside a major operation, how to build consensus, how to um, navigate, um, you know, in complex internal businesses with high-performing. Uh, cultures, um, and then I worked for uh, Jeffrey Pelham Lane at um, and Charles Watson at mm. Financial Dynamics. Again, real leaders in their field, and who taught me, you know, a huge amount in terms of 
in Jeffrey's case, understanding the sector. He, he'd been an IR director of a, of NatWest, um, so you know he, he was really brilliant. Uh, and then and then Antonio Hortosorio again, a, you know, a really you know, brilliant leader of his business, um, um, who taught me a huge amount. And now I work with a guy called Charlie Nunn, who's a different, completely different leader, but again, brilliant. So pick your bosses. I think um, they make a huge, huge difference to your not only your fulfillment, but but um, but but you know your career path. Yes. So if there was one thing that you love about the job, what, it, what would it be about corporate affairs? Uh, it's, 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 I don't want it to sound, it's, you know, militaristic, uh, belligerent language, but it's, you're playing with live ammunition. And sometimes there's a sort of adrenaline rush with that, right? Particularly where you're dealing with a major, a re- major retail brand and you're dealing in real time at speed and pace. And when I was coming out of university, I thought about going into the law and I did some pupillages in barristers' chambers. And I remember doing long hours hearing the clock ticking as I was working <laughs> on it. I was thinking this hasn't quite got the sort of energy and adrenaline that I wanted in my sure. in my, my life. And I and then I went to work in PR and discovered that stuff happened at speed. And if, you know, Damien Reese was on the phone <laughs> shouting at you from the telegraph, you needed an answer pretty damn quick and it was all you know, everybody was panicking, running around. That's the adrenaline that, that matter now. There's plenty of adrenaline junky jobs that aren't necessarily intellectually challenging, but I think corporate affairs really is. And the complexity of the issues, the balance, the uh, need for integrity, the need to build long-term reputations, um, balancing reputations between clients and journalists and competing audiences and needs. Those are those are quite stimulating uh, intellectual challenges especially if you're starting out in your career and I think um, I think those are those are some of the things that have kept me going through the more tedious parts <laughs> of my, it's not all great right <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, so getting into the nitty-gritty what has been the biggest reputational issue you had to deal with at Lloyd's and how did you manage those and what did you learn so like any large financial institution, uh, issues of conduct and behavior are always at the forefront of uh, reputation management. Um, we have 65,000 colleagues uh, and we have 26 million customers. And of course, things go wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. And managing those is you know, part and parcel of what you sign up to uh, in, in, in a business like ours or any other business with large numbers of retail customers. Mm-hmm. For us, when I arrived, one of the missions I was set by the board was to try and resolve some long-running challenges that Lloyd's had, had been enduring reputationally, many of which were legacy issues from the 2008-2009 the period and the merger between Lloyd's and HBOS. Um, of those, I think one of the most toxic, and we've been very clear that it was one that we've been most concerned about, was the HBOS Reading fraud, which mm-hmm. was a, a fraud that had happened in a turnaround business, in a, a Reading turnaround business back in the early 2000s, but uh, not uncovered until later. And uh, the the group, obviously, uh, Lloyd's Banking Group inherited the problem from HBOS, but but then tried to resolve it and has found and found it really difficult to resolve it and to compensate the individuals and um, made a number of missteps along the way. And that's reputationally been really, really challenging because, you know, there are 250 or so people who were very materially impacted by that to whom we've really profoundly 
had to apologize and you know rightly compensate mm. uh, and some of the stories have been harrowing and quite rightly political audiences and the media have held us to account uh, for our treatment of them and our compensation of them and um, we have acknowledged on a number of occasions that we've really struggled to get that right. I think we're in a much better place now. We're largely through the end of the compensation process, but that's been a really complex, reputationally challenging um, space to be in because um, it, you know our room for maneuver was very difficult, and mm. the, you know the things we were dealing with were you know upsetting for not most importantly clearly the customers impacted, but also the internal pride in the organization right our colleagues felt bad about this our colleagues were trying to resolve it it obviously held back colleagues in their pride in the organization and it was very prominent in the press mm. um, so that was one of the you know earliest things uh, most recently we've had a you know an extraordinary blow up in the form of the Halifax pronouns um, yeah. drama which was very unexpected mm. uh, for us um, and not a comfortable place to be but not one we were shy about um, we, we put out a very routine announcement about people having the option to choose to have gender pronouns on their uh, name badges if they worked in branches. It was not obligatory, but uh, that wasn't really clear in the messaging. Mm. And next thing we knew, we had a sort of spiraling social media story uh, associated with it and, uh, and, and front page stories and Piers Morgan and all sorts of other things. And that's a pretty uncomfortable place to be as a retail brand. Uh, and lots of uh, difficult, um, you know, difficult decisions to make about what, if anything, you can and can't do about it. And sometimes, as you undoubtedly advise clients, you have to just tough it out and, you know, not retreat from your position if you believe it's the right one. And we did mm -hmm. in this case, um, but that's quite tough uh, mm -hmm. and requires, you know, some tough internal discussions with board and senior managers where you say, no, we're going to hold on and mm -hmm. we're going to tough it out. And so uh, those are a couple, but. In any given day, there are a multitude of you know, really challenging issues that come up um, because we serve 26 million customers and have a big impact on people's lives. And when things go wrong, that can be pretty, uh, you know, pretty difficult reputationally. I know Vicky wants to ask you about uh, reputational issues more broadly with banks. Can I just ask you, though, um, before we do that, about what it's been like to be inside a big bank, uh, specifically Lloyd's, whilst you're watching what's going on at SVB mm -hmm. and Credit Suisse. Has that been a watching brief for you, or has it been something that you've had to more actively manage reputationally? Yeah, I mean, we uh, I had a front row seat in 2008 working with some big financial institutions, um, and we've had flare-ups ever since 2008, yeah. right? We think... Um, you know, over the last few years, um, you know, this is not uh, our first rodeo. We've, we've, we as an industry have been on a journey and have seen, you know, a variety of versions of uh, flare-ups and concerns in the financial services sector. And I think the sector and regulators and others have worked really effectively uh, to, um, to build monitoring capability and escalation um, capability that means that we're as prepared as we can be to deal with um, the situations as they blow up. Um, but there are all, every single one of these provides uh, vignettes and lessons. Um, and um, the it, it's not lost on anyone who goes into financial services that um, more than, uh, you know, almost any other industry, uh, our, our, our uh, ability to operate is based on trust. Yeah. 
and um, trust in the institution operationally uh, and trust in every aspect, you know, every version of trust is is very real. And um, people often talk about trust being intangible. Well, it feels very tangible inside a bank uh, when, uh, you know, there's a lot of yeah. uncertainty in the market. So I think what we, as always, you know, we will we have been looking at what's been going on at SVB and Credit Suisse, and of course, we, you know, we're not anything like those institutions. We're a hugely well-funded, well-capitalized, uh, you know, um, systemic institution that is, um, you know, in as strong a position as it could possibly be. So we, we, but that doesn't mean we sit and look complacently at what's going on and thinking that you know it couldn't impact the organisation. We've had our own version of that in our own history, mm. and every, there are a lot of people who still work for the organisation who live through what happened in 2008 and 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 onwards um, and have lived through you know the eurozone crisis and the other crises that we've seen since then I mean trust you're absolutely right is the, the sort of key commodity in a way isn't it it's the it's the awe of banking and with Credit Suisse I don't know whether you agree with this or not but I, I look at Credit Suisse it had lots of capital it had liquidity but it also had a terrible reputation mm. and I would argue that Credit Suisse was as much <clears throat> a reputational failure as a, as a balance sheet failure in many respects. It seemed to be on the edge anyway and toppled over because people finally ran out of trust, I suppose. Would that be fair, do you think? Yeah, I, I I don't have enough insight. Clearly, they'll you know over time somebody will you know do a proper analysis of what what led ultimately to the sort of collapse in trust in the institution. Mm. But there's certainly lessons for everyone to learn. I think your points are right that some of the building blocks and foundation stones of trust had been significantly weakened over time. Firstly, I think their business model over a number of years has been challenged, and they've acknowledged that themselves. They'd obviously also had a number of uh, back in October 2022. They had a sort of you know initial run on the bank, which I think they stemmed quite effectively and uh, you know reputationally. But but you just have those areas of fragility in place for a sufficient length of time, and then a couple of things drop as happened to Credit Suisse with the comments of their largest shareholder, followed by, um, uh, you know, the, the collapse of SVB and other, you, you just all of those things then have a knock-on effect yeah. and it's a rolling effect. I think their deposit base is very different to other institutions. They do have a Swiss retail bank, but that's not the bulk of their liquid deposits. Those are in private banking, um, which of course are in large chunks. Uh, and so, you know, a, a bank run at, uh, the likes of Credit Suisse is a very different, um, uh, a very different play out to to a sort of traditional retail bank, but equally so, I, I think for them it was a, you know a confluence of difficult factors that uh, that played out together. The lessons you know will clearly be looked at in detail by regulators and others for many years to come. So Andrew, you've just discussed um, the sort of latest um, issues um, hitting the industry. Um, looking forward uh, to the future, what are the three most pressing reputational issues the banking uh, banks will need to grapple with over the next few years? Well, some of them are UK specific, uh, and some of them are um, are international. But I think for us, uh, from a UK perspective, um, what we saw. Um, um, in the early stages of 2022 in terms of the cost of living uh, impact is top of the agenda for all our audiences and therefore it's top of the agenda for us. 
um, we, we have got a very unique insight. We bank 25% of the UK, so we can clearly see from people's spending and behavior uh, where the points of uh, difficulty are. Uh, we tried to explain and contextualize that for political and media audiences in particular, because we think there's been a risk of a, a lack of focus on where the help is really needed, which is the 1% of our customers who are genuinely struggling to um, make decisions about heating or eating and, you know, very, very real decisions. Mm. Um, 80% of our customers say they're worried about cost of living, but the vast majority of them can adapt their behaviors to deal with it. Mm. It, it Certainly, you know, it's not an easy thing for people to have to decide not to take holidays or buy white goods or all this, but it's a different order of magnitude of decision-making to heat or eat. Mm. Um, And that 1% is where we have focused all our energy uh, more than any other, and we've certainly urged politicians to be most focused and I think they've been receptive to that um, so so reputationally that's you know number one on the agenda without question secondly um, sustainability and the transition to net zero is a very significant reputational issue it's not top of the lists when you go through the lists of audiences it's still four or five on the list but it's absolutely building in significance mm-hmm. and um, the financial institutions have a an interesting role in the transition to net zero because, of course, you know there's a defunding carbon uh, movement, if you like, that uh, is focused on institutions and the role they play in in financing um, the transition. Number one, but also mm-hmm. you know carbon and defunding carbon over time. Uh, we've got to navigate that effectively. Now, Lloyd's as a domestic bank doesn't do you know financing of large. Uh, international um, oil groups in in the Middle East, right? Mm. But 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 we are um, you know we are the biggest um, funder of mortgages, we're the biggest funder of car loans, we're the biggest funder of um, farming in the UK. Those are the three highest emitting areas in the UK. I call the, the I call it the three B's problem for us: boilers, bangers, and bovines. <laughs> um, we, we we you know we have to be part of the dialogue that is about the transition in those three areas, mm. and and we are. And um, uh, my boss is you know very very animated and act, you know involved in a lot of those discussions with government and elsewhere. So so I'd certainly say that is is a second one. And then and then third, you know I think. Um, Interest rates are always a challenge in an inversion period for banks, either on the downside or the upside, and pass-through of interest rates is more complex than it used to be. And I think the transmission mechanism of interest rates is a much more complicated uh, a dialogue than it used to be, uh, and that poses different reputational challenges. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think when we have a sort of 1980s mindset of how interest rate lever was pulled in Threadneedle Street means, you know, transmission mechanism through to savings and mortgages. For regulatory reasons, we can't, we don't hold liquidity and capital in the same way that we used to. And so the transmission mechanism doesn't work as simply as it used to. And and we're left with the problem, which is that, you know, because we're not passing base rates directly through to savers and, and, you know, to be clear, Savers are a small proportion of the population. It's only about 20% of the population have more than £5,000 in savings. But nevertheless, they are you know, very politically important and uh, politicians are very actively focused on them. And that is a, a reputational issue that we have to manage. And, and indeed, we've been in front of the Treasury Select Committee recently talking about it. Looking back in history, and you, you touched on this previously, Andrew, um, 
did banks t- make the most of the opportunity in 2008 um, presented to change or do you think the opportunities have been missed? I think they did take the opportunities. I think it was so enormous a shock to the system that having worked with financial institutions since then, um, the the transformation has been enormous but slow to see. But I think the proof point was the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I think a real inflection point reputationally for a large number of big corporations, and I put the supermarkets in the same I think they did, you know, brilliantly during the pandemic. I think banks really stepped up and showed that uh, they have a, you know, a social impact role to play and a contribution role to play, uh, not only in being a a transmission mechanism for government support, but also showing how we could show forbearance and support directly to customers and how we could be seen to be doing the right thing. I think we made a real impact. I know the organization feels very proud about what we did in in the pandemic, and I think we're trying to repeat that in the cost of living crisis. But but that that sort of mindset and behavior Mm. started out on the journey in 2008, 2009. Now, the culture change, the operational change, the regulatory change, and I think the regulators deserve a huge amount of credit for the way the industry now behaves, both in operational and financial terms, but also in cultural terms. Um, that's been a long and slow journey. Um, we're a world away if by any measure and benchmark, and you look at the, the trust barometers or you look at any of the other metrics that we use, both customer and uh, stakeholder audience, we're in a we, you know we're in a world away from two thousand two thousand nine. So, have the lessons been learned? Mm. I think yes, and mm. I think, but has it happened quickly enough? Mm. No. Yeah. I think it took a long time. And in fairness to the industry, it wasn't as though it was a night and day moment from two thousand eight two thousand nine to you know a couple of years later. Um, the uh, uh, the industry was able to say it, it had transformed itself. It had to navigate the eurozone crisis. It had to navigate, you know, a significant economic downturn. It was, you know, like re-engineering an aeroplane that was on fire in midair. It was a, you know, a very difficult task. But I think um, that the leaders of the industry at the time set themselves a course with the help of some very um, far-sighted regulators uh, and politicians and set a new course to rebuild trust. And I think they've they've done a lot. Mm. More, of course, needs to be done. But I certainly think um, that um, the transition and the journey of the organizations has been significant. And Lloyd's own journey has been, you know, very, very significant in that regard. Mm-hmm. I think the, the, the pandemic example is a really good one that you give of how a bank is now behaving. And I guess the inferences, it probably wouldn't have behaved like that necessarily. I'm not not talking here specifically Mm. about lawyers, but the big banks in general. It wouldn't have behaved in that way in 2008 or or before. Um, Would you say, therefore, that fundamentally the most important lesson that banks have learned from 2008 is is, is one about their own social utility Mm. and living the social utility that banks... I guess are supposed to have, and we didn't really think about it so much back in 2008 um, until uh, was it Lord Turner who who kept on talking about it's time to get back to the social utility. Well, I think that get back is important, right? I think I think the industry would acknowledge that it had forgotten its yeah. social utility, and I think it rediscovered it. Yeah. 
um, you know, fundamentally at its heart, I'm a huge advocate for the positive social impact of financial services. Yeah. You know, at our heart, we take people's savings and investments and we relend them to people to buy homes and build businesses, right? It doesn't really get better than that. It's proper socialism, genuinely. Now, where that comes off the rails is that if, the, if that's not matched by conduct, that is appropriate and character in the business that's appropriate, then you get yourself into reputational difficulty. But at its heart, what we're doing is a fundamental social utility. And um, we talk about our uh, purpose statement of helping Britain prosper. People respond really fantastically to it because it's really easy to understand and really, and people, absolutely connect the impact that a strong domestic bank can have on helping support people in buying homes and building businesses. And we can say a multitude of other things reputationally, but at its heart, that's quite a simple message to get across to people. Yes, I was going to ask you about helping Britain prosper, what that means, but I think you very eloquently explain it. From my point of view, from what you've just said, it's about getting back to that fundamental basic of why do we exist transforming savings and deposits into something socially useful i think Uh, that's right uh, and i think i think also to your earlier question the um the journey that industry as a whole has been on in in understanding its social utility and expressing its social utility to its audiences and explaining it is also one that I think you and your clients will probably have been on, right? We talk a lot about purpose now in a way that we didn't in 2008. That's not because it's a new invention. It's just because we've re- we've recognized that it is a fundamental building block of license to operate and reputation and uh, is a huge motivator for internal uh, engagement and and recruitment and and other important drives of the business. So that social utility is not just a bank specific issue. I think you go through industry by industry, you mm. see people having a much more mature dialogue about um, the social impact that they can have because our employees demand it. Right, and you're not. We don't recruit millennials and Jed Z recruitments and not have this conversation. Right, they're absolutely at the forefront, banging on the door, saying, "When I come to work for this institution, I want to know what impact we're having." on the world. And for someone who's come into Lloyd's um, over the past five years, you've been there five years nearly, do do, do you get the sense that the culture of Lloyd's still in some way reflects the fact that Lloyd's was bailed out by the taxpayer? Does that still reverberate within within Lloyd's in some way? Yes, it does. Now, I I wasn't working with or for Lloyd's at the time, Mm. but certainly a lot of my team were. And uh, clearly, it was a defining moment for the organization culturally. Um, the organization knew it needed to do a number of things uh, in the years that followed the taxpayer bailout. Uh, firstly, was to rebuild trust with all its stakeholders that it was an organization that had sorted itself out financially, operationally, and culturally. But also, it needed to rewin and repay trust uh, and repay manifestly the taxpayer bailout with interest, uh, which it did. Uh, and that was a turning point again in itself. But that that journey uh, to rebuild trust and to re-earn the right to exist and to operate freely um, was a hard one one, and it was largely hard one before my time. Um, but it was a, you know, a slow and, and careful, um, you know, and, 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 and in every decision every day that the institution was making it was needing to repair and rebuild a trust that had been you know obviously significantly 
damaged as a result of that. And I think I think repaying the government, repaying the taxpayer was a hugely important moment for the organization internally because uh, everyone had worked extremely diligently to do that uh, and then felt, uh, particularly in the expression of, of our purpose statement of helping Britain prosper, which came out at the same time as the repaying of the of the government uh, taxpayer, they, they re, if you like, recontracted with their social social purpose. There was a sort of new social contract, mm. uh, which um, was embraced by all of the employees that they had to make a difference in in the UK. Um, Andrew, you're someone who has worked in the City of London all your career. Um, and moving beyond banking, the city itself seems to be suffering a degree of, uh, I'm not sure it's a reputational crisis as such, but there's a bit of a crisis of confidence, perhaps. The London stock market is now smaller than the Paris bourse. My mm. goodness me. Mm. Uh, how terrible. Um, and uh, there's a sense that the city doesn't get tech and we're not seeing as many flotations and all the rest of it. Um, I mean, is there something that needs to be done that should be done by the city as a as a as a an entity to to restore some confidence in it or restore its reputation? Is it something for the government to do, or should the city do it itself? This is, I mean, obviously this is beyond my sort of day job. And and Damien, I defer to you as a sort of industry commentator in the city for many many uh, eons to have a better view of this than mine. But for what it's worth, my own view uh, as an observer and and worker in the city for many years is that. The city is an ecosystem, uh, and it's a fragile ecosystem. We've got used to talking about fragile ecosystems recently, um, and and the language of the risks to a fragile ecosystem are applicable to the city. There are lots of interdependencies. There are lots of different species that all coexist together to ensure that the uh, ecosystem uh, continues to thrive. And uh, if you if you knock out or undermine aspects and conditions uh, of that ecosystem, uh, the knock-on effects are sometimes not seen until much later. And so I think if you were to look for uh, why uh, the city is challenged, you would you would look at a whole variety of decisions that have been made over many years. Uh, and clearly, we can see that. Um, that you know, some things remain extremely strong and powerful. There's no doubt that uh, the UK legal system uh, and advisory community in the UK remains, frankly, the leading uh, version of, of itself, a species of itself in the world. Uh, and that's a huge advantage um, to continue to mean that, that the city is an attractive place to operate. Um, as to the equity markets uh, and the depth of capital pools, that this is um, this is an area that I think has been looked at in great detail by some very much smarter minds than mine. I think thinking about the K report, I think about the work that um, William Wright does at New Financial. I think there are quite a lot of smart voices out there that people should read and think about because I think you have to acknowledge that in terms of a capital raising venue, and you know, there's a a whole series of debates you can have about how necessary that is to the ecosystem, but let's assume that it is. Um, it is a challenging place uh, for entrepreneurs to choose to launch uh, a business and to seek uh, capital. If you look at the U.S. Uh, market, the depth uh, of of 
capital markets is in a world of difference. It has been for generations, but but retail debt funding, for instance, is something we've never quite managed to crack in uh, the UK, and I think it's a, a you know vital centre for that. I think uh, we've got trapped capital due to capital rules um, like Solvency 2, which we're looking at and I think will change, that again, I think aren't the panacea to the problem, but I think aren't necessarily, uh, you know, uh, working to our advantage. Um, the allocation to UK equities of UK pension funds has, you know, dropped enormously. If you just look at it, it was you know, on average 50% and it's now down to below 20%. That's trillions uh, in capital that aren't um, currently in the pool to be tapped by entrepreneurs and other businesses. Now, there are many attractions to London legally and regulatorily. They remain fantastic places. And for certain sectors like uh, financial services, energy, natural resources, those remain very large uh, centers of excellence and deep pools of capital where people would come and raise capital. But I certainly think the city is going through a little bit of an existential crisis, inevitable after um, Brexit as well, although Brexit shouldn't really have affected some of the issues that we're talking about. We never had an integrated capital market before Brexit or after. But nevertheless, I, I, I think regulators and others are are on it and are aware of it. But we can see the US markets and the Asian markets in particular racing away as attractive uh, places with very deep capital pools um, that if you're an entrepreneur or a CEO, you're going to say, well, it's sim just simply easier to raise capital there. We've got to uh, acknowledge that. I did controversially for a moment have this conversation with the city editor the other day where they said, what's your view on this? And I said, well, have you looked at your pages today? And you, know, you look across the, the pages of this particular newspaper. And, uh, you know, there were, you know, a, a succession of articles that were really problematic, particularly on the issue of remuneration mm -hmm. for CEOs. Now, I'm not in any way questioning the media's um, right and responsibility to properly hold to account corporate leaders for appropriate remuneration. But those things go together, and it's a different type of dialogue. It's a different type of attitude in different media markets. I'm not in any way saying that that in Amsterdam or Paris or Zurich, there aren't really uh, strong condemnatory attitudes to things like entrepreneurial pay and and CEO pay. There are, um, but but let's all we're in we are all in this together. Mm -hmm. The media are part of the ecosystem. Uh, the UK media are part of the ecosystem, and I don't think um, I, I don't think I, I think everyone's involved. I think um, yeah. the city editors of the of the UK papers know the role they play and the tone they set. And, you know, if um, if senior uh, entrepreneurs are choosing uh, not to incur their wrath by going elsewhere, then um, then fine. But I think we've um, yes. we've, we've got to just ask ourselves some tough questions. All yes. of us. I think the point about the media is a really important one. And um, I think what what's particularly lacking uh, and it's something I tried to redress when I was the city editor at The Telegraph was to, if not, um, well, yes, to if not celebrate successful business, at least 
acknowledge it and report it yeah. to create some balance so that, yes, of course, you can criticise bad business practice. Absolutely. If and that you should. is what it is. I think you should. And, I, and I, I think this is really important because and pay for performance is the version of that. Right. I, 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 exactly. I, I think it's, a, you know, it's absolutely right. And indeed, I think the US media and others do this as well uh, to go after senior um, leaders of companies who you know, are paid uh, in spite of bad performance. That is not right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and you know, I we hold ourselves to account for being paid for performance, and and they should too. Um, but but I think um, having a permanently negative mindset about growth and opportunity or catastrophizing issues, you know, again, as a city editor, when you're setting that tone in those meetings, yes. what balance are you finding between going looking for some success stories to balance out? The catastrophizing. Now, again, I'm a realist. I re- recognize, I know what I meet, read in the media. I know what headlines I'm drawn to. So I'm as much part of the issue as anyone else. But um, yeah. we do find some media institutions are better than others mm. at seeking out that balance as yeah. opposed to, you know, yeah. clickbait catastrophizing. Yeah. And that yeah. that feeds through into the ecosystem in which we're all operating. So, you know, if we all wake up in 20 years time and find that the entrepreneurs are listing in in Shanghai and New York because it's just a more healthy, optimistic, uh, happy place to be. Um, well, fine, we'll all be scratching our heads and wondering why. Do you think boards and senior management generally appreciate the value of corporate communications and reputation management? Yes, I really do. And I think this is a sea change. Um, certainly over the course of the last 10 years, um, all major companies have upgraded, I think, their focus, resource and seniority of talent uh, in uh, in corporate affairs. I think when Damien and I started out in the city, uh, it was rare to find a corporate affairs director sitting on the management committee of, of anything other than the very largest companies. And now I think it's routine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the breadth of responsibility uh, and, and budget and um, reporting lines reflect the fact that this is this is critical. I think boards and certainly the amount of time I spend with our board um, are hugely focused on reputation from a license to operate perspective, but also because I think they take a a really close interest in its impact on customer service uh, and and success. So what makes a great corporate affairs leader? God, I don't know. I mean, I... Sure you do. No, I I (laughs) don't. Some of the the best ones I've seen are... um, able, of course, to stand their ground and give advice in a really tough situation. Um, I think if you were to ask a CEO, and that's who you should ask, really, um, I think they would say somebody who will give me truth to power, honest advice, and tell me when they just don't feel that what we're doing is the right thing. I think, again, it differs from role to role, but some of the best I've seen are people who have an absolutely comprehensive understanding of their organization. And I think... um, corporate affairs function can be a little bit like the central nervous system of an organization. You have to be across everything to see what's going on and to have a, a have an impact inside the organization uh, in order to steer you away from things that can go wrong or to ask the right questions and ensure that the right uh, reputational considerations are being made. So again, a corporate affairs leader who can set themselves up and their team up in a way to have a comprehensive view of the organization, I think is going to be a very effective one. And then thirdly, I, I and maybe it's just because it happens to be my journey, but I think it helps to be somebody who's done every job on the ladder of corporate affairs, right? I was a graduate trainee in a corporate um, 
comms firm. I was faxing press releases in my first day. Um, I have done every briefing note and version. And, you know, and I, I do think that helps. If you've done every version of this job, mm-hmm. it does help. It isn't, ne- it isn't absolutely necessary. Some people make brilliant transitions from you know, outside of corporate affairs into corporate affairs jobs. Um, and um, and you know, th- th- they're great. But I, I think some of the, the best leaders have done all the grunt work and learnt the piano scales before they played the sonata. So, finally, if you weren't Chief uh, Corporate Affairs Officer at Lloyds Banking Group, Andrew, what would be your dream job? Oh, this is interesting. Uh, so I would love Laura Laverne's job at Desert Island Discs. I think it's a great format if you're interested in people, and I think if you're a corporate affairs person, you know, you're always interested in people. I think extracting from people their stories, their passions, their interests. I think that is a great job. I love that show and I I, uh, I would love that job. <laughs> so the other job that I've always wanted to have was uh, to be the opera critic of the Daily Telegraph. I think Rupert Christensen has the best job in all of Fleet Street. He gets to go around um, basically uh, eating in the best restaurants and gossiping about <laughs> opera. And I love opera. I'm a, I'm a nut about opera. And I used to be on the Royal Opera House board, fundraising board. And um, I just think he has the freedom and the knowledge and the fun to indulge himself. Andrew, thank you very much for your company today and your fascinating insights. You've been listening to Spin Unspun, the podcast from Instinctive Partners about corporate affairs and corporate communications with myself, Damien Reese and my co-host Vicky Haynes. Vicky, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Damien. Our guest today has been Andrew Walton, Chief Corporate Affairs Officer at Lloyd's Banking Group. Join us again for our next episode of Spin Unspun. Details at instinctive.com. Find us on social media, on the usual channels. And if you'd like to get in touch about Spin Unspun, just drop me a line, damien.reese at instinctive.com.